Hi, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sincorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. And in last week's sermon, Pastor Dan, you talked about several things, but I think the main thing that stood out to me was just thinking about the true essence and the true beauty of who God is. And so we heard this story from Isaiah where Isaiah basically gets this insider's view of God and heavenly hosts or angels, and he just has this really enlightening, really beautiful experience. And so I think before we kind of dive right in, I'd like for the listeners to think about whenever you are in God's realm or say if you are to enter into God's realm, what do you think it would be like? What do you think it would look like? How do you think you would feel? What would be going on in your mind? Would you be totally awestruck? Would you walk around thinking, well, finally, (laughs) what would that be like for you? And then, Pastor Dan, I want you to tell me the story of how it went for Isaiah. And I think we'll start there. Yeah. Well, so I was just thinking about what you said and the question that you posed to the listeners. And I will tell about Isaiah, but I think that I can't help responding in just one small way to that scenario. Whatever you think you'll do when you're in the presence of God, it won't happen. It won't be like anything you can imagine. I mean, that's the wonderful, you know, Mercy Me song, right? It, I can only imagine. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful song. And what he's saying is, I can only imagine what it will be like. And I'm pretty sure that that's not informed well enough to imagine accurately. It's not a discredit to the song. It's just a way of saying, you know, I'm pretty sure. I I will tell you that whenever I think about such things personally, I'm talking about myself here. I, By the way, I'm looking at this picture on the other side of you there that I've loved for years. It's a person coming into Jesus' throne room, and he's walked the red carpet to the master's throne, and the master has fallen to the floor to meet him. and hug all over him, and and he's got a crown and a robe. (laughs) There's broken chains. It's just a, it's it's one of those things you could, uh, you could just look at it indefinitely and just study it forever. And, you know, it's called Safely Home, and it's uh, by Dan Diaccini, I think his name is. I'm probably saying his name wrong because I'm going from memory. But anyway, he makes these beautiful paintings like that. And see, we can only imagine, but I get the distinct feeling from the Lord that he's saying, it's all right, go ahead. It won't matter whether you got it right or wrong, because just imagining it is fine, (laughs) you know? So just go ahead, listener, and imagine like Adrian asked you to. For me, I, I always get weepy when I think about being in the presence of Jesus doesn't matter what it looks like. It's just the idea of 
like when I start thinking about him looking me in the eye and it's just he and me, he can do that. I don't know how he does it, but he can do that. And I can imagine it. And you know, from being in my office where we record this, that I have a handful of pictures of Jesus around the room because I like thinking about being with him and embracing him and feeling his the entirety of his love without all my sin and all my brokenness and all my history. Because one of the things that's really going to come out in this next week's message, which is kind of part two from the one we're talking about, is that not only is the Lord beautiful, but he makes you beautiful in his eyes. And most of us just can't accept that. We can't see ourselves the way he sees us. And to imagine him seeing us the way we really are and maybe revealing what we really are like in his eyes could be, well, if you weren't already outside this weak human shell that we live in, you'd die. (laughs) You know, if you weren't already dead, you'd die because you couldn't handle it, you know? And and I think that for some of us, seeing the person that we have the potential to be will be very hard. And in a way, that's a form of judgment. And the Bible tells us that. See, I also believe I'm doing it, I guess, that thing I always do. I also believe that when the Bible speaks of certain things. We have a tendency to imagine too much and blow them into a proportion that isn't suited to what we're reading. In other words, if the Bible tells us that certain things are inevitable, we have a tendency to overthink them and try to humanize them and secularize them. One that I spent years studying was a passage that said that the sins of the father would be visited on the third and fourth generation. And I thought, well, that's not fair. But then the older I got, the more I realized, well, he's just saying how things generally work. (laughs) It isn't necessarily a curse. It's just a statement of the way things are. If a father's really screwed up, then it's probably going to take three or four generations of effort to undo the damage Mm. and to start a new paradigm, you know? And when I realized that some 35 years ago, I started praying for that to happen. I said, Lord, then let it be me. And I didn't even have children then. I just said, when I'm a father, let it be me. Let me be the last of my generation or that generation's seed, you know? So getting back to heaven and Jesus and the throne room of God, because you asked me what happened to Isaiah, but I went off on a tangent as I want to do, because I just started imagining myself fulfilling the assignment you just gave. And the thing is, I've been doing that assignment a long time. I have stories I wrote from my creative writing class when I was a junior in high school that imagined such things. And that was a little while ago. Yeah. <laughs> 45 years I was just thinking, just this afternoon, I was a junior in high school. That's kind of inconceivable to me. It's, I'm not that old. Surely I'm not that old. 
So Isaiah writes that he is experiencing the throne room of God, and he's describing everything he sees, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And and it's just, this scene is so brilliant with glory and light and and inconceivable beauty. And, and, And he notices that even the angels are covering their mouths and their eyes and things, and as if as if they have to filter the glory of God in order to withstand it. And then he says, oh my goodness, I am not supposed to be here. This is, this is if the angels are being cautious, then surely I should be cautious. And then one of the angels comes to him and says, hey, hold it. There's a simple solution for your problem. Of course, you can't solve the problem, but the Lord can, and so he takes this burning coal from the altar, and and in this instance, and you don't have to stretch your imagination much to understand the meaning. This is a wonderful sort of prophetic image of what Christ is going to do, because Christ is the sacrifice on the altar that takes away our sin, right? And altars are symbolic of that, and and a sign of his sacrifice for our sake. And so the altar bears a hot burning coal that when the angel touches it, and maybe it wasn't an angel at all, maybe it was the sun, mm-hmm. you know, and and he touches it to Isaiah's lips and he says, now you are holy enough to be here. And so it's a real clear picture of how Isaiah recognizes how completely unworthy he is to be there. And then he recognizes that the only thing that makes him worthy to be in God's throne room, gazing upon the glory of God. And and I don't know how to say that even and give it justice. These are these are incredible images, and there's no parallel that I can give to to, you know, if you've seen something that was so glorious and beautiful that you were awestruck into silence, it was prettier than that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I told the story in church on Sunday about how I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains with my friend back in the 1980s, and we were walking high in the Cascades. I mean, really high, and and we were on the Pacific Crest Trail, and we'd walked for several hours from our car down because we'd gone to a pass to park, and and up in the pass, well, you're going to go down one way or down the other. There's no higher to go than the pass and so apart from climbing a mountain and so we got on the trail at this pass and we started down into the forest and these forests are the pacific northwest forest man there there are millions of trees and they're all trees that are averaging about 20 feet in diameter and 200 feet tall and when the wind blows in the tops of these trees, it roars. It's just incredible. And then, and then you get down along a stream bed, and there's these cold mountain rivers flowing down through the cracks and the rocks, and they're roaring. And it's just an overwhelming sensation. And then we finally come out of the darkness of this relative darkness of this, this deep forest. And we step into a meadow on the side of the mountain and I'm looking at purple flowers and yellow flowers. It's early spring. There's still old snow that's gathered in places where avalanches have once gone down. And there's, there's this 
brilliant blue sky and puffy white clouds and there's white peaks up above me on one side and purple, literally purple mountains across the valley on my other side. And I'm looking at all of this and I'm just standing there with my chin laying on my chest, just oh, just overwhelmed by the magnificent beauty of all of this. And my friend, who's just kind of a smart aleck by nature, I don't know why I would hang around with people like that because it takes one to know one. My friend says after a few minutes, it's not that pretty. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. It was that pretty. And you know what? The glory of God, I still can't conceive of. I've been gifted to see some of the most magnificent beauty this world has to offer. I really have. I've been so blessed. I have been so blessed in my life to see some of the most beautiful things in creation, but they're all tainted by sin. You know, I joked on Sunday because our mutual friend is an airline pilot and he's a member of our congregation. And I said, and the scene was perfect and, until Dave flew over in his Delta jet. Well, maybe not literally in that moment, but it would have happened eventually. And I'm sure even when we climbed the mountain the next day and took in the view from around 5,000 feet. I remember seeing airplanes, you know, and it's like, it doesn't matter where you go. The world is tainted with sin and there's dirt in the snow that came from the sky. And it was probably exhaust dirt from those airplanes. And, and it's just like, no matter how beautiful anything is in this world, it doesn't even come close to the glory of God, to the beauty of God's throne room, to the beauty of God's Son. You see, I look at my children and I see beauty. And there are so many things I didn't understand about God until I became a father. Until I became a dad, I did not understand how much you could love another person to the point where it hurts. I never could have grasped how, no matter what happens when I look at them, I am in love with them, and I, they're beautiful. And, and it gives me just the slightest hint of what it must be like to be loved by God. And I can't even imagine how much God loves the Son. And so Frank Viola's premise in not only the Insurgents book, but in several of his books, he has this kind of theme that he writes about in all of his books. They are, they're all built around this one thing he calls the divine purpose, right? God's divine purpose. And God's divine purpose, as Frank defines it, by the way, I recommend pretty much everything he wrote, but this particular theme touched me deeply in a book called God's Favorite Place on Earth. And his divine purpose is, is outlined by Frank as a desire, because of his incredible love for his son, to create a perfect companion people for his son. And the son returns the love so much that their love creates and saves us. Like, like, so, so the premise that Frank gets at is that God loves the son so much that he creates amidst the dark chaos that is the world ruled by Satan and his ilk. He creates this island in the middle called Eden, and he creates in that place Adam's race, and Adam's race is for Jesus, 
for Christ the Son. He doesn't have a name at this point. You know, he's Christ the Son. He's God's Son. And God loves the Son so much that he wants to create this perfect bride or companion for Christ, the Son. And then the Son has to reconcile excuse me, has to reconcile the relationship between God and the descendants of Adam because the descendants of Adam taint themselves with sin. They, they were as beautiful as the mountains before the dirt, before the pollution, before all. They were more beautiful than that, and, and they sin. And so because of their sin, they're no longer worthy to be in God's presence, and their unworthiness could be their destruction. And God at times throughout the Bible talks, especially in the Old Testament, about how maybe it'd be better to just let them be destroyed and start over, and and maybe this time make them a little more sin-proof, and then someone, and we don't really know who, but it's like God's better nature, if as if God can have a better nature. God's, God's son probably says, don't, Dad they'll be better because they'll choose to write themselves in your eyes. They'll be better because they'll decide that they want you, even if it costs them their sense of life and liberty and their flesh, you know, that, that, that they might actually come out better because they had to embrace the solution to the problem of sin. You know, and, and it's just a fascinating idea. And it all comes back to the fact that there is this, this heavenly father who is so passionately in love with the son and, and, and with the highest order of, of beings in, in God's realm, which is the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. And there's this love between them that is a community and yet it's all in one and we don't understand how to explain it it's a it's a beautiful mystery you know written mysteries aren't always a bad thing you know mysteries are simply things we can't explain but we know are true i i don't know what the sun is made of the scientists have speculated that it's a lot of hydrogen and stuff and they have tests that they can do to check their theories, but, you know, until someone figures out how to go to get a little sample of the sun and bring it back and put it under a microscope, <laughs> no one's going to know for sure. Yeah. So it's a mystery. And there are lots of mysteries in the world, and that's not bad, because mystery gives us room for God. Mystery says that God can be a mystery, too, and that God could be the mystery being who created all of this. And to what end? Why did God create all of this? And what was God thinking when God allowed the gates of Eden to be open so that the enemy could come in and tempt the people? Well, we can only guess at what God's thinking is, but what we do know is, is that before the sin had really settled, God already announced that there would be a plan to destroy this consequence of sin and a, and a way of redemption, and it would be through the Son of Man, which is a figurative statement that means God's Son born of the flesh. And so it's like right there in Genesis, he's already telling you what the rest of this book is going to reveal. You know, like any good author, God has given you all the instrument, 
all the elements that you need, that's what I mean to say, at the beginning of the book so you can understand how the rest of this is going to go and you can watch it unfold. And and the reason I'm just telling this story like this is because it's like, like you can't see the beauty without telling the story. If you stand in the presence of God someday, and I hope you will, hope I will, and good time, and 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 not understand in whose presence you stand, then you won't appreciate the magnificent grace and beauty. So that was that was pretty much what the whole message was about Sunday. It was just like try, if you will, to wrap your mind around the real beauty of God, and then particularly to wrap your mind around the Son who takes all of his radiant beauty and sort of puts it in a box called the body of a human being. <laughs> and it's as though that radiance, and, and we have tons of, you know, CGI special effects and everything. And we've had lots of movies and TV shows where we've attempted to, to illustrate such things. And, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, just in my late teens, and a movie came out called Cocoon. It was a good movie. It was a cool movie. Well, basically, these aliens were these beautiful glowing creatures that glowed brilliantly, but they were wearing human skins. And so they looked like everybody else until a guy just happens to look through a hole in the wall, you know, to watch one of them and watches just in time to see this alien unzip her human skin <laughs> and suddenly Woo, it was glowing like light and brilliance and everything. And, and so we've experimented with these ideas in our imaginations for as long as people have been around. And, and, you know, the idea that contained within our shell is this incredible glory that if we could release it from the flesh, it would be incalculably beautiful. And it's this. C.S. Lewis deals with it in one of my all-time favorite books that I reference frequently on this radio program of ours. I, I love The Great Divorce, and it's a, it's a book that kind of gives you a picture of how people become way too comfortable in their skin, and they don't really want to try to imagine life outside of it. And, and of course, it's a, a rhetorical question. It's, it's about using your imagination to see if you can figure out what being like Christ would be like. And one of the things you figure out is, is that he's way more than his body can contain. And we get a taste of that after the resurrection, because we begin to see him doing and being things that he didn't have the capacity for when he was confined to the flesh and bearing the weight of our sin. And yet, even with that, he was able to do miracles. And he said, if he wanted to, he could call down a legion of angels, you know, so it's like the, he had limitations when he was prior to his death and resurrection. But after his resurrection, the limitations are gone. And so we have in him a glimpse of what we can be. And part of what we can be is beautiful. Part of what we can be is beautiful, and it's inconceivable. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what is beauty? And that's what we're going to really deal with in the next week's message, is that, that beauty is something to behold, like Isaiah saw in the throne room. He's looking at 
this presence of God, and he's seeing this glorious beauty. And, and you know, when John visits the same throne room in his visit to heaven in the book of Revelation, he describes as best he can what the floors are like and what the furniture is like. And, and it's all glory that he tries to equate with human things so that people might read what he's writing and say, oh, so like, like the most beautifully jewel-encrusted throne. Yeah, on steroids and plugged into the wall so that it glows all the time. And even then it's not enough. And you, you know, it's like, it's like that. So, so there's a sense of an outer beauty, but what really makes Christ beautiful, even in his suffering, is the extraordinary love, the incredible love. It's, it's like, I say things to people that I think ought to knock them out of their seats. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but when I say to people, do you understand that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was thinking of you? Adrian, he was thinking of you. That that ought to make people now once you've got that and you've really embraced that. Obviously, it's not as shocking as it was the first time it really dawned on you. But still, there are certain things that we glean that we glean from scripture that just they ought to knock our socks off every single time I'll, I'll give you an example people will say you know well I, I don't know i'm setting this up wrong i often find myself telling people like your kids in the youth group i'll say you know do you understand that god is outside of time and space that that god is is some some theologians would say he's the holy other you know he's but what it really boils down to is, is if god created all of us then god is the creator and there's only one and it means that whatever we are he's more than that because he's the creator whatever we are after he creates us he was that and more before he created us. So we get told that we're made in his image, but what does that even mean? Well, you know, it obviously doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, white or brown or purple or whatever. Obviously, it doesn't mean that you're made in his image unless you're a woman. And, you know, it's amazing how many idiot people in the name of the Bible have used the Bible to abuse other people when God clearly you know, should not be taken to, you know, on those terms, you know, I think the devil must have a pretty easy time of it with a lot of people because <laughs> he can go, well, you know, if God made people in this image, then he must have made women inferior, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> but people believed such things. Yeah. They really did. You know, there's a real good probability that Jesus had a, you know, a pretty good tan back in the day, you know, because of where he lived and everything. And who, who's to say that he didn't have a different kind of pigmentation because of the people from whom he descended, you know, now there are, there are people out there that go off on a tangent and they say things like, well, he was an Arab. No, he wasn't. The Bible tells you that he wasn't an Arab. Right. And that's neither here nor there. I'm just saying that you can't go too far with these things because you got to take the Bible at its word and what it says and what it doesn't say. And there's plenty of information in there about his lineage and about his descendancy. So, you know, you can't really say that. But but the point is, is he's not some some white European dude like the, the uh, Renaissance painters made him. You know, he's not this frail, skinny white guy 
you know, on a painting or a fresco in Europe somewhere. You know, they painted Jesus in their image. Hint, not right. You know, right. It, it it's like we can't make Jesus in our own image. What we're trying to do is to be like him. And obviously, being like him isn't limited to gender or race or anything. It has to be more about being like him in his character. But he invites us to be like him, not only in character, which is sort of a code of ethics that we choose to live by. You know, character is something that you you learn and you perfect over time. And and some people are born a little more predisposed to good character than others. But at the end of the day, character is about the decisions you make and the choices you live by. And so we try to be like him in character. But when we're born again, we're actually like him in being. You know, now all of a sudden we're getting a soul makeover. And so that radiant, beautiful being that he is, is planted inside us when we're born again. And then that radiant being that he is, is striving to take over this whole entire person that we are. And so we're like the alien trying to get out of the human skin. My microphone is actually slowly descending. There we go. So, you know, we have a we have this this inner part of us that's been made over by God, and it, I've told people in the past that it seems to me like God has rewired our DNA so that we are no longer wired or or genetically predisposed to be like the ancestors that we see in our lineage as much as we are now carrying the DNA of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we have the capacity to be entirely like the Father, our Heavenly Father, because that's what He becomes when Jesus adopts us into the family through His act of redemption. So, okay. <laughs> I was over here thinking that I was glad that you mentioned excuse me, about Jesus's lineage mm -hmm. and his descendants, because it prompted me to tell of a really cool Holy Spirit moment that happened on Sunday. So in youth group, we're reading the Bible in a whole year. Well, we're reading the whole Bible in a year. There we go. And we just finished Genesis. And in Genesis, of course, we're reading through the stories of Abraham and Esau and Jacob and Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we got to the reading Sunday morning in youth group where Jacob is blessing Judah. And Judah is the one who gets preeminence, even though he was the fourth born. And he says, Judah, may you have all these blessings upon you. May you be like a lion and all of these things. And so then you flip to Matthew chapter one, and it has all the descendants of Jesus and, and there's Judah. And so when we say that Jesus is the the Lion of Judah, that came full circle back to Genesis for us. And you mentioned the Lion of Judah in the Revelation reading that you said. So, yeah. you know, John is describing his experience up in heaven. It's heaven, right? Right. I mean, yeah. Right. And he he describes the Lion of Judah, and, and the angels are saying it, I think, is yes, what happened. Yes. And so then I literally looked behind me to see if any of my youth group kids had their mouths open like I had my mouth open, because, I mean, it just came so full circle for me. Here's the beginning of the entire Bible, and it's saying 
it's making a reference that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And then you're at the very end of the Bible at Revelation saying the same thing. And it was just a really, really cool moment for us. And I came up to two of the kids after church and we were just talking and I said, did you guys catch that? And they said, oh yeah, you planned that, right? Like you guys coordinated that, right? And I'm like, no, not at all. That was totally the Holy Spirit. And they were just blown away by that. And it just reminded me of a comment that you've said to me before about how when Christians are living in the Spirit together, the Spirit will lead and there will be signs just like that, that the Spirit is leading you in the right direction. And so I so much feel that at Shiloh right now. And it's so encouraging and so exciting to be moving because of the Spirit and to be moving with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful, like you said. Yeah. Christ is beautiful, and I think as Christians, we're called to to shine that beauty to others. But beauty is not vanity and sanity, right? It's not like, oh, I have to go get a facial and all of these things and make sure I'm perfectly healthy. But it's like you said right before we went on the air, beauty is humility. Yeah. Beauty is grace. Beauty is Christ. And so we can spew all day that that we're a christian and you know we we love our church and all of these things but if we're not walking the walk the 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 gospel is not going to grow it's not going to spread and people are not going to want to figure out what's going on in this whole christian realm yeah we're tasked to share the beauty of christ and so it's really important to talk about these things and read about these passages because we are learning a little bit about what that beauty actually looks like. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I love what you're saying, and and I, it's like I was thinking about it. It's something I said several weeks ago that is not original to me. I actually got it from a Jewish rabbi that that we really need to understand that there are two kind of distinctive worldviews that come out of ancient civilization. And one is generally you could refer to as the Greek worldview, and the other is the kind of Judeo-Christian worldview. And really, if you look at ancient societies and the literature they left behind, you know, whether we're talking about Mesopotamians or whether we're talking about the uh, East Asian cultures, you know, whatever, they all celebrate human beauty in the flesh. They all celebrate the perfect body, the perfect face, the perfect physical traits, the Adonis, the human male that is so perfect. And, you know, that's why they were infatuated with making carvings of naked men and women, you know, because they wanted to permanently preserve the the ideal beauty that they saw in in certain people because you know what happens to all of us gravity takes over as we get older and our flesh gets less firm and gravity starts making things hang and sag and everything else and like it or not we just can't stay pretty for very long it's very short and yet people will spend their lives fighting this and what that does is that proves that you want to be in control of things you can't really be in control of. And it makes sense that that is, in effect, the essence of sin. Because the one who created, I, you know, like, like sin wasn't invented, but, but sin as a problem for God 
starts with the rebellion of God's heavenly hosts and the ones that are, you know, the one that was considered the most beautiful of all the angels is the one that ends up leading the rebellion against God and then is cast out of heaven. The bright morning star, the beautiful one, is cast out, this Lucifer. And and what's amazing is, is that there's a sense of beauty in in the natural created sense, like the flesh, right? You know, mm-hmm. and and what this problem of sin is all about is, is that this Lucifer wants to be in charge, wants to control things, wants to say to the creator God, I know that you are superior to me because you created me and you existed before anything else ever was. But still, I think that I'm prettier than you. I think you made me better than you. Okay. And I suppose it could be argued, you know, because I like thinking that my children are better people than I was at their age, but I didn't make them better than me. They aspired to be better than me. And before God or the law, for that matter, they're not. (laughs) You know, when it gets right down to it, nobody's really better than anybody else because we all stand before a holy God who determines what good is and what bad is and what the judgment for such things should be. And that's the point. And somehow Lucifer thought he could take over God's role. And it's like, God says, you want to take control of things you can't control. And what is the person who keeps having physical surgeries to offset the weaknesses they see in their flesh, you know, and then they end up looking like an abomination. You know, we've all seen pictures of these people. It's usually women, but men do it too. And they look like these absurd, weird abominations, like like something you take out of a Play-Doh jar or something. And this is what this person looks like. And they've lost sight of who, themselves. They've, they've completely lost their humanity to this weird distorted view of flesh and blood. And and all of this to say that this Greek worldview celebrates the physicality and the things we can control. And so we build monuments to people who control things. We build, we paint and preserve and photograph and art the best of us in our beauty. And And then when we no longer possess the physical traits that the world admires, we begin to feel bad about ourselves. We we begin to feel, and then if you just happen to have the dumb luck of being born incapable of having the physical traits that the world admires, you go through your life feeling inferior. So that's a real nice thing that the world of the flesh does for other people of the flesh. It basically categorizes them according to how pretty they are. And you can overcome ugliness by having particular charisma or being particularly strong or something, you know. But sooner or later, the the body or the flesh is the thing the world values. And this is what we roughly, loosely call the Greek worldview. But then you have the Judeo-Christian worldview, and it defines beauty in an entirely different way. It sees old age as more beautiful than youth. It sees... It sees... uh you know, it sees a woman with wide hips because she's had eight strong children as beautiful, right? You know what I mean? Like, like, like the Bible sees the 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 things that God loves. God sees. See, who does Jesus? You know, how many times does the Bible tell us that He looked at somebody and had compassion on them? Yeah. He sees beauty in their weakness. You know, 
what what an old man with a long gray beard says to the Lord is, is you have lived and you have scars on your body because you have lived, you know. He sees the he sees the faithfulness of that old man's long life of relationship with God, hopefully. Yeah, I mean that's but God God views us in an entirely different way. One thing I love about going to Israel is is that with my gray beard I fit right in with those old rabbis that walk around there, and everybody tips their hat to them and treats them with respect. And it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to be seen as somebody whose who's relative age and the gray beard says something about them that is admired in that culture. You know, where in our culture, I worry all the time that sooner or later the church won't grow with younger people because the younger people will say, well, why don't we have a younger pastor? I mean, look at that old guy. But in the Judeo-Christian sense, the Bible is telling us that the best pastors ought to be old gray-haired dudes. The best teachers ought to be people who have been around, and they have the wisdom, and they have the presence of the Lord. They've walked with God for many, many years, and so they carry that long walk with God with them everywhere they go and with whomever they talk to. And It's just a whole different view of beauty. And so the point is, is if you want to understand how beautiful the Lord is, you have to understand what he considers beautiful. And he considers the people who give up their self-will beautiful. He considers the people who are already predisposed. He sees my handicapped daughter and son as much more beautiful than the pretty people who walk fast, walk past them in their makeup and their fancy clothes and, you know, and their slim waists and their broad chests. And, you know, they walk past my handicapped children and say, oh, that's pathetic. You know, that's just, you know, boy, do I feel sorry for their parents or whatever. And, and actually, and I don't mean this, this this is the truth, Adrian. This is, if I'm lying, I'm dying, as they (laughs) say, right? I consider it an awesome privilege to be the parent of those two handicapped children. The Lord looks at them and loves them and sees the beauty and loves their beauty. And he loves me for being willing to do everything and anything I can to care for them in his name. And I thank him for the privilege because he trusted me to take care of them, me and my bride, you know? And and to think that he gave us this gift of responsibility And then there are these vain, self-important people who are always trying to control how they look and how they're perceived by other vain, self-important people. And and they go through their lives living in this vanity and sanity. And you know, that's just another word for chaos. And you know who is the one behind all the chaos. Mm -hmm. And so my whole concept of beauty is different because of the Lord. And to understand that the older I get and the less physically attractive I am, the less strength I have, the more beautiful I am in his eyes. Because whatever vanity I had because I thought I could take care of everything myself is slowly fading away. And that makes me even more like the kind of person he wants me to be, dependent on him. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question listener for the next week. If beauty is in the eye of the beholder and God is the beholder, how beautiful are you? 
something to think about. Friends, it's in the sermon notes, and I'm going to try to end with it on Sunday, but I'll give you a preview. He loves you. He adores you. He thinks you are the most beautiful you there ever was or ever will be. He sees you without the filth of sin, without the history that has wounded you, without the images that were forced upon you. He sees your mind cleansed of all the ugly things you've seen and heard and said and done. He sees you pure. He sees you the way he saw Adam before Adam sinned. They were naked. You know that's figurative, don't you? It may have been absolutely literally true also, but the reason that they were afraid because they were naked was because they realized that they had sinned and they couldn't hide that from God. And so God's solution is to wash you clean in the blood of Christ. It's a metaphor, but he washes you clean through his son's sacrifice and he washes you clean so that you're no longer filthy in his sight. And you don't have to be embarrassed because he sees all of you and knows everything about you because he sees it cleansed. I talked about that last Sunday. I said, you know, there's something about the glory of God that kind of burns away our ugliness. And it's as though we're standing in one of those, you know, exfoliating baths or whatever, you know, where you, they, they take off a layer of your skin to get down to a fresh, clean layer. And, and it's like God has glory enough to exfoliate you into the cleanest version of you that you can be. And, and he sees you. And I mean, like, you can't see yourself. And he looks forward to the day when your flesh and all of its burdens, all these you know what a sea anchor is? Most ships, especially back in the old days of the sailing ships, drifted long, heavy chains with anchors on them behind the boat in order to keep it from tipping and turning too much in the gales. And and uh, these sea anchors made the ship more steady, but they also slowed it down and they also dragged it down, you know, and and so we we are we are carrying around these anchors, you know. We're pulling these chains full of dead weight behind us, and part of it's because we need the stability that that they give, and we're afraid of what it would be like to be completely set free. And He sees you free. The Lord sees you the way you would have been in the Garden of Eden had sin not crept in. He sees you beautiful, mm -hmm. no matter your sin. All right, stay tuned. Until next week, bye. Bye, beautiful.
Thank you.